All right, we are, I looked at the spreadsheet um, later this evening, and well, before I came here, basically, and we're about two-thirds of the way through the prayers of the Bible list for our sermon series. So I get the privilege of adding to that. I think this is 19, sermon 19, and um, we're studying Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I'll, I'll go ahead and read that. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's a very short prayer. It's, in a sense, quite simple, but it's also paradoxical. We see that the, the wise, the understanding ones, they, they do not understand. They are, the, it is hidden from them. These things are hidden from them. And the little children are the ones that, they are the ones that understand. And so there's this, this subverted expectation, you could say. So it's definitely a prayer also that demands we understand the context. After all, what are these things? And why is it gracious for God to both hide these things and to reveal them? If we do not know what these things refers to, we could wind up very misguided in our study. And to be honest, it's, it's so easy to brush over those quote-unquote little details when we, do, when we do Bible study. If I'm reading along and I see these things, and maybe I don't know the context, I can quickly go, uh, whatever my first assumption is, throw it on top of the text and keep going with it. Right? And, and in doing so, really what I've done is put up a barrier between me and accurately interpreting the Bible. I said, I'm going to just have no, no new ideas here, just whatever makes sense to me, throw it in. Not, not care about learning or, or truly understanding what the text meant to say. And so my, my exhortation to, to you and to myself is to, to not do that. To instead, let's, let's take time to look into the context, research the context, look through commentaries that we know and trust. Um, let's pray when we read the Word of God, pray desperately for insight into His Word. And and one other thing that struck me, I was thinking through, what, what should I be doing when I'm reading the Bible and, and get to things like this? We have such a privilege to have fellowship where I, I can go to one of my brothers and my sisters in this church and say, I was reading through Matthew 11, 25, 26, and what, what do you think these things means? Can you read the passage with me and, and give me your thoughts? And That's such an encouragement to me when, when I get to spend that time with brothers and sisters going through the Word of God. And, and seeking him. So the word, of, the word of God is so precious. It, it deserves our time and our full attention. And so let's, let's put the effort and critical thinking into exploring his word with deep desire, with, um, with fellowship, and let's be prayerful. So given that exhortation, you might expect I actually looked into what I think these things means for, for a sermon tonight. And so I'll, I'll give you a defense of what these things means. And first, let's, let's start by going through the context. So if you, if you go to Matthew 11 or Luke 10, actually, Luke 10, 20, I think it's 21, 22, both of them have the same prayer from Jesus. And if you go back about a chapter in both Gospels, you can pick out the, the major events pretty easily. So the first, first thing that happens is Jesus sends out the twelve apostles, to perform miracles and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is in Matthew 10. Then Jesus goes to teach and preach and perform miracles in the cities where his apostles were from. 
Then Jesus comes back from preaching and teaching in those cities and denounces them for, for not heeding his warning, not, not repenting at his message. And so with this context, we can see that Jesus' focus is the gospel message, both which he proclaimed in Galilee and sent his followers out to proclaim. It is on the heels of Jesus sending out his disciples to preach and on the heels of his rejection that Jesus prays this prayer, which makes a strong case, I believe, for these things being the gospel call to repentance. And so I'm, I'm going to read the previous five verses along with the prayer and just to, to show you that context. If you read Matthew 20 through 26, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So we can see that in Matthew, this phrase, these things, comes very much in the context of the gospel call to turn away from a selfish, evil lifestyle and to follow Jesus instead. And this idea is supported in a couple commentaries that pulled up as well. If we, if we look at Matthew Henry, Henry's commentary on, on this passage, he says the following. He says, these things. He does not say what things, but means the great things of the gospel, the things that belong to our peace. He spoke thus emphatically of them, these things, because they were the things that filled him and should fill us. All other things are as nothing to these things. Or as John Gill put it, the things he means are the doctrines of the gospel, such as himself, his person, as God and Son of God, his office as Messiah, Redeemer, and Savior, and the blessings of grace, righteousness, and salvation by him. So if these things refers to the gospel, then Jesus tells us God was gracious to both hide the gospel, gospel from the wise and to reveal it to little children. So in our study tonight, I want to explore ways that the Bible demonstrates these two truths, that God was gracious in hiding the gospel from the wise and gracious to reveal the gospel as the verse says it to little children. So let's, let's pray before we start. And Father, I come before you and your people, and, and you've given me the, the opportunity, the privilege to, to seek you in your word, and Lord, I want to bring what you have shown me to your people. And Lord, if it comes just from me, it is worth nothing. I need the power of your spirit. I need you to speak through me or it, is, or it truly is nothing. And Lord, I pray also for my brothers and sisters here that, that as your word goes out, that they would have open ears and they would grow in, in their love for you and their knowledge of, of your character and of your glory. Father, thank you for the privilege of having your word and thank you for this great thing, the gospel. The gospel which has made me 
into one of your children. Though, Lord, I deserve nothing but your wrath. Instead, you've lavished upon me your goodness. Thank you, Lord, and, and help us as we, as we seek to glorify you tonight in the reading of your word. Amen. So I'll start with the first assertion Jesus makes, which is that God is gracious to hide the gospel from the wise. So I think there's, there's two things we kind of need to start with as we get into this, this assertion. One is, how exactly does Jesus mean wise? And also, how is it ever gracious for God to hide the gospel? I think these are two legitimate questions. And in keeping with the context, I would, I would argue that Jesus means wise in ways that enable them to understand the gospel. Now remember, Jesus just went out and denounced the very Jewish cities of Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They who had the oracles of God. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They should have recognized their God when he came to them in flesh. They should have known Jesus was the Messiah. And more specifically, the influential Jewish religious leaders of the day, particularly two groups we often hear about through, throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had lives dedicated to knowing the law and the prophets. And yet they did not realize that Jesus was the very Messiah that would come and fulfill the law and the prophets. In fact, instead, they hated Jesus for maybe a number of reasons, but at least a couple very clearly. He called them out for being hypocrites, and he took away the praise that they wanted from men. Like we read in John chapter 5, Jesus says to the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So such a description of the learned Pharisee from whom God has hidden the gospel. This, this is the description. And, and this I think paints the picture for what Jesus means when he says hidden from the wise, those that should understand that have the revelation from God and yet do not see. So how then is it, is it gracious for God to hide the gospel from the wise? I think this is the next question. And I want, I want to be careful about what exactly we mean by it being gracious for God to hide these things from the wise. We see the phrase gracious will in, in the ESV and we probably think immediately about God's grace. And when I think about God's grace, the first thing that comes to my mind is a, a common, common saying. You've probably heard it before that grace is getting something you don't deserve and mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Right, so God's grace is that we get eternal life or really that we get air to breathe and, and sustenance, that we get to enjoy anything on this earth. Though we don't deserve this, we deserve his wrath we get to partake in, in good things. This is God's grace. We're getting something we don't deserve. And mercy, on, their hand, on the other hand, is, not getting, is getting something we, not getting something we do deserve. So, like, if you are spared from hell as a believer in Jesus, you're not getting what you do deserve. You're not getting that eternal punishment and wrath that is, that is owed you by your sins, but instead Jesus is taking that for you, and you've received God's mercy. So that's, that's mercy and grace. Um, but I think I want to be, be fair and, and critical about what the connotation is that we, that we put on these verses. I don't think necessarily we should put that connotation of grace onto such was your gracious will. Um, 
I, I'm, I have a few different versions of, of the English Bible that are listed out here, and I'm going to read the phrase in Matthew 20, 11, 26 in, in these different versions. In the ESV it says, such was your gracious will. In the NASB it says, this way was well pleasing in your sight. In the KJV it says, so it seemed good in thy sight. And one more I've listed out is from the NLT. It says, it pleased you to do it this way. So the ESV is actually kind of the oddball out when you look at the phrasing. And so I, I also I dug a little into the Greek. And from, from Thayer's Greek lexicon, we read that the word for well-pleasing or, or gracious um, is eudokia. And this word is used mainly to mean goodwill or benevolence. And maybe you could say kindness. It can also mean satisfaction, which is, I think, more what we see when, when we look at the NASB or KJV, where it says, seemed good in thy sight, or seemed well-pleasing in, in thy sight, in your sight. And so, I think if we take the, the Greek lexicon, and we take these different English versions, we look at what, what the breadth of this phrase could mean. I think we can safely say it refers to God being pleased to do what is good, and pleased to do what is kind or, or benevolent. God is taking pleasure in showing kindness towards men. So with that terminology cleared up a little, and I guess also to say God's grace is obviously gracious. God's grace is obviously kind and benevolent, but I, it, is, it is a different, it's not exactly that theologically rich term that we're thinking about when we, when we talk about grace, when we say gracious. So still, even with that th terminology cleared up, the question still lingers, how is it kind? How is it benevolent for God to hide the gospel from the wise? Isn't hiding a good thing the opposite of graciousness? If you can imagine it, I still believe the word of God proves true, even when it's not so obvious to us. In fact, God hid these things from the wise and understanding to bring the greatest kindness the world will ever know. God used the religious leaders' rejection of the gospel, these wise, blinded men. He used their rejection to fulfill the gospel, to bring Jesus to the cross. In their blindness to the gospel of Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees were unwittingly made tools for the gospel of Jesus, for him to be sacrificed for the sins of his people, for all who would trust in him. Not only for the Jews, but across the whole earth. Praise God. I'm glad for that. Glad it also extends to me, who is not a Jew. Not only to the Jews, but to all of God's people from every people and tribe and nation and tongue. As Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I have this little book at home. It's, it's about chess. This is analogy time. And the, the title of the book is Chess. It's maybe not very creative. Um, but it's, it's a little tiny book. It's about maybe different things, different tactics or something. And, and there's a, a section titled Sacrifice, which I'm, I'll quote part of. It says, Sacrifice is the ultimate tactic in chess. You apparently give a piece away, but it is in order to obtain a greater advantage some moves farther on in the game. You may even make the supreme sacrifice of all, a queen sacrifice, on the expectation of ultimately gaining checkmate. And if you've ever played chess with me, you know that I'm really good, actually, at sacrificing pieces. <laughs> it's really not to any advantage on my side, but I, I'm pretty good at that. But the point, the point I'm making is that at, when we look at the scene of, of Jesus 
on the night of crucifixion, we, we do not see a scene of, that looks victorious or glorious. At the hands of these blinded, worldly wise men, the greatest of all mankind, the God-man Jesus, was arrested and falsely accused, insulted, blasphemed, mocked, beaten, and executed. As Jesus rightly tells these men when they come to arrest him in, in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, he says to them, This is your hour and the power of darkness. It seemed as though the enemy had won. The Pharisees and Sadducees had their way with the people, the people who loved Jesus when he was going around and healing them and preaching the good news. Somehow the Pharisees and Sadducees got them to say, Crucify him. We want Barabbas, not this man. On that night, Jesus had betrayed him. Peter denied him. All of Jesus' disciples fled from him. But in the sovereign plan of God, this was the very move that God's enemies were predestined to make. Like Peter says in Acts chapter 2, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was according to his eternal love and mercy towards sinners that Jesus was sacrificed to take away the punishment of sin on our behalf. Instead of us being punished forever in hell for our sins, Jesus was punished on the cross for the sins of all who would trust in him. The debt we owe to God for our evil deeds instead was charged to Jesus' account. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when he rose again from the grave, it was checkmate for the powers of darkness. God confirmed the defeat of death through our risen Savior, Jesus. The hope of resurrection to eternal life for all who believe. Not just for Jesus, though he's the first fruits, but for all of us who believe are now ushered into this eternal life, this resurrection. Like it says in 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what immeasurable kindness was shown to us amid these blind men's evil deeds. Perfection before God in victory over sin and over death. So Jesus, in his love for sinners like you and me, he thanks God for hiding the gospel from the wise men of his day because he knows that it is all part of the Father's ultimate, sovereign, and gracious will. It's at this point that I want to offer an application, how we, can, how we can apply this truth to our lives. Clearly, these wise men and, and the Jews of Chorazin and Bethsaida, these, these people, they all rejected Jesus' teaching straight from his own lips, right? I ask you a question. Will you be a better evangelist than Jesus? Do you think you will be? I, I don't think you will be, just to be clear. When you are rejected, then don't be discouraged because, well, you could not be in better company. It is even, so, so Jesus talks about this, I believe, in Matthew 10.25. He tells them, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? We cannot really expect anything different from the world but to reject us. And as you are faithful to him, God is indeed using you for his kingdom and glory. Even when it doesn't seem like it, God is being faithful to, to, to his word. 
I know that many of you are in sensitive and wearisome situations in which you are consistently rejected. I think about people in my own life, my own family and friends. I've shared the gospel many times with many people I love only to make them angry with me. And I know many of you, if not, well, probably all of you are are in similar situations. And you have a family member that you're you're sharing with or, or praying for, and it seems to be of, of no effect. But my encouragement to you is, don't give up. Trust that the Lord is at work. May we have that confidence that Jesus showed in the perfect will of God, that God is indeed working through his word even when we feel like failures. I'll read from Isaiah chapter 55, it's verses 10 and 11. It says, For as rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What is this thing? I I often don't know. Well, maybe I never really know. Probably never know the full extent of what God's purpose is. But I know that he is succeeding in his word, as it comes from my mouth. I can trust in that. We can trust in in God, knowing that his word will not return to him empty. So now uh, let's, let's move to the second statement Jesus makes in this prayer. First he said, it's gracious for God to hide the gospel from the wise, but he also says it's gracious for God to reveal the gospel to children. And firstly, I, I, will, I will say that I don't think we literally need to take this as kids, though kids are not excluded from, from this description. I dug into the Greek again here, and, and the word for little children is nepios, and this word is also listed as being a, an analogy for someone who is unskilled or, or unlearned, untaught. And so in this interpretation, it contrasts well with the wise, the, the learned, the understanding, and then the unlearned, the ones that are, are ignorant. That parallelism strikes, strikes a balance there. And so whereas the religious leaders, for all their learning, could not see their need to repent and follow Jesus, God reveals the gospel to those without that learning. And we find an example of this in Jesus' disciples themselves. Like Matthew Henry, he talks about the, the nature of the disciples in this same commentary, in the commentary on this chapter. He says about the disciples, such the disciples of Christ were, men of mean birth and education, no scholars, no artists, no politicians, unlearned and ignorant men. Yet out of their mouth, strength might be ordained, and God's praise thereby perfected. The learned men of the world would not make choice to be, of to be the preachers of the gospel, but the foolish things of the world are. We also see Jesus confess this to be the nature of his disciples when he addresses Peter in Matthew 16, um, verses 13 through 17. I'll read that here. Now, Jesus, when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we, 
Who revealed this to Peter? It wasn't his own machinations. It was, it was God who had revealed it to him. And we know that, well, from the rest of the Gospels, we know Peter was not always the brightest guy. He definitely wasn't the super wise and, and crafty one. Actually, only 10 verses later, after, Jesus, after Peter says Jesus is the Messiah, he goes and rebukes Jesus. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine saying that, oh, this is the man, the perfect one of God, but I'm going to set him straight. Now, this is not wisdom. One day I'm going to meet Peter in heaven, and um, uh, I wonder what, <laughs> maybe I'll need to apologize to him for, for treating him so roughly in this in the sermon. I guess I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what he went through, but, um, but we, do, we do see anyway that this is not a moment of, of wisdom. Um, but it does show us that God is incredibly gracious to save us despite our inability. God is incredibly gracious to save us despite our inability. I'm going to use an analogy, a couple analogies here in a row. We can, um, first off, I want to look at uh, pro sports. So about 7%, actually less than 7% of high school athletes go on to play in the NCAA. And of those 7%, actually less than 2% go on to play professional sports. Now if you, if you do the math, that means less than 1 in 700, probably more like 1 in 1,000 high school athletes will have the dedication and ability to actually make it to the professional level. As another example, there's a little story that I like about a, a prolific American violinist named Isaac Stern. One night after a concert, he was approached by an adoring fan who said, oh, I would give my life to play the violin like you do. And his reply was simply, I did. I did give my life to play the violin like I do. Or more personally, I might tell you about the many grueling hours I spent studying for my engineering classes. I worked a lot of hard hours to understand very complex and abstract problems so that I could have the learning, I could, I could know the content, and pass my tests. And what I earned was good. I now have a well-paying career with good job security. But let me tell you, I, I have something way better than an engineering job. What I have that I did not earn is infinitely better. We as God's children are given eternal life without grief or pain. We are given an exalted place to rule with Jesus in his perfect kingdom. We will forever be in the presence of God, the God of peace. Listen to how the Bible describes our future. I'll, I'll read from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Also, I'll read from Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree 
were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. You notice that no longer will be anything be accursed. And why? Because the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. These are incompatible things. In the presence of God, there is nothing accursed. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. How much more valuable, then, is eternal life than, than my measly engineering job or making it to the NCAA Hall of Fame or a violin concert? We work so desperately hard to earn these little earthly things in acceptance from men. How could we ever earn salvation be accepted by God? We cannot. We cannot do this thing. But God, with undeserved kindness, did it all for us through Jesus. Like it says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is by God's power we are guarded, not by any of our own strength, but by God's power. In Romans 6, 22 through 23, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Moreover, we did not even see our need for salvation. We were not wiser than the rest of the world. We, didn't, we weren't like going through the eternal newspaper and saw eternal life for free and snip this coupon. No, we, we did not see it with our own eyes or come to this conclusion on our own. We didn't just happen to go through that paper on our own. God is the one who opened our eyes. God is the one who came and gave us this eternal life. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who has shown his light into our hearts. So how kind has God been to us? How gracious has God been to us? He has done all the work to make us royalty in his kingdom, and he revealed to us our need for Jesus when we did not see it, our need to repent and believe. So it is no surprise that God revealed the gospel to ignorant nobodies, for his salvation is all due to his work, not our wisdom. So Jesus, in his love for sinners like you and me, thanks God for revealing the gospel to little children. He knows that it is all part of the Father's ultimate sovereign and gracious will. Now considering God's power in saving us, there's, there's a number of passages in the Bible that, that talk very, very specifically about God's sovereignty and salvation. Think of Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans 3. And what I find is there's a common application that the Bible gives after talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. And it is that you cannot boast I want to read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. I think this highlights that, that application maybe the most clearly. For, considering, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So truly we can only boast in Jesus. All other boasting is wrong. That's it. All other boasting is wrong. So we, and I think if I asked any one of you before, before we met tonight, is can you boast outside of Jesus? You would have told me no. But what, is, what does that look like? What is our boasting not in the Lord? What does it look like? What are some common pitfalls that, that we run into? And there's a couple of things that came to mind when I was studying. And one example is, I believe, when we start comparing ourselves to each other in the body. When I start thinking or implying, oh, I, I'm, I'm doing better in my Christian walk than this guy because I've memorized more scripture than he has or or, you know, he's kind of lazy, but I, I really put in, put in the effort at my job. I enjoy working hard. These, these things are good, but if that's my focus, then, then I have, I've missed the point. And we, we could go the other way, too. I could be like, oh, I, I wish I could pray like she does with such eloquence and compassion. Or there goes a godly man. He's got it all figured out. I wish I was as smart as, as he is. I wish I knew my Bible as well as he does. And I, what I'm not saying is that there's no place for cautioning your brother when you believe he has fallen into sin or encouraging someone when you see them pursuing the Lord. That's not the point. But the minute when we start evaluating them by their works, that's where we've messed up. Such thoughts are focused on what man can do and what, not what God has done for us. When we start comparing ourselves, we have stopped looking at Christ. Consider how Peter starts his second letter. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our G- and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. We have a faith of equal standing. How? Through the righteousness of Jesus, that we did not earn ourselves, that we did not apply to ourselves even, but God came and applied to us in his great kindness. So only let our worship, our works, let them be a thanksgiving to God, to whom we owe everything, even the enabling and desire for these good works is a gift from God. True gratitude towards God is, I believe, incompatible with comparing ourselves to each other in the body. Another example, I believe, of, that, is, that is of bad boasting is when we consider ourselves better than the unsaved. So first better than each other in the body, but then also better than the unsaved. And we all have someone who, who makes that difficult, probably, a coworker or, or a family member or friend who is clearly a slave to some sin, Maybe he or she is, is an alcoholic or, or promiscuous or something like that. And it's easy for me to, to take the attitude of, oh, clearly they're not a Christian because they're a drunkard or name that sin. But I don't think, you know, but I'm not a, I'm not a, 
um, I'm not a bad person. I'm clearly a Christian because I'm not living in, in some outward sin. And the truth is that there is truth to that, but really what I've, I've flipped it around. I am not a slave to sin because I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Not my own strength, but God's strength in me that has set me free from sin. Just like in, if they had the Holy Spirit in them, it would be the same way. As the, as the reformer, John Bradford, he would say, there but for the grace of God go I. This is a very famous phrase of his. The, the unsaved are not any more undeserving of salvation than, than we are. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. As Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So when I start thinking of the unsaved as worse than myself, I am acting as if somehow I was owed my salvation more than they. I was not. It was completely God's work, not my own. All I can add to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. My boasting is excluded. I can only truly boast in Jesus. So that, that brings us through both points that Jesus makes, I believe, in the prayer, that God is gracious to hide the gospel from the wise and to reveal it to little children. And to wrap up our study, I want to revisit the context of Jesus' prayer, this time looking at the verses afterward as, as well as before. So if you remember, Jesus, the, the context was Jesus sent the 12, the 12 apostles out to preach the gospel, then he goes to their own hometowns to preach the gospel. Then he comes back and denounces those cities for rejecting the gospel. And then Jesus thanks God for hiding the gospel from the wise and revealing it to little children. And then Jesus says this. He's apparently addressing some crowd, which is not uncommon for Jesus to have a crowd. He says, All things have been handed over to me, to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All things have been handed over to Jesus. Does that include the gospel? Does that include these things? I would say so. For Jesus then says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It is only those who look to Jesus, who follow Jesus, that share in the goodness of this gospel, that have their eyes open to their need to repent. It is Jesus. As Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Or Hebrews 1, as it starts off saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God has spoken to us through his Son, Jesus, who is the word of God. John, first John, or John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.
So what should we do? If Jesus is the one who holds this authority, who, who has been handed the gospel, if it is to Jesus that we must look, what should we do? We should come to him. He who is the only way. And the very next thing Jesus says is, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That means stop trusting in your own wisdom or your fake sense of goodness. Stop living for yourself or whatever pleases you. Instead, ask God for forgiveness for your sins, which Jesus paid for by his death on the cross. That's what it means to come to Jesus, to look to Jesus for your salvation, to no longer look to your own strength or or wisdom, but to ask God for forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for you. I will leave these these words from Jesus in the Gospel of John. I'll leave this, leave this sermon ending with this, I guess. But it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's John fourteen six. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So we must trust and obey Jesus. Let's pray, and I'll give it back over for worship. And Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great gospel. Lord, thank you for hiding these things from the wise and revealing them to little children. Thank you for for making me one of your little children, for showing me my need for you, that I would come and depend on Jesus instead of myself. Lord, for for my brothers and sisters that are out here listening tonight, and and they have have people in their lives who, who... do not understand the gospel, Lord, that, that you have not revealed the gospel to them yet. And Lord, I pray for, firstly, honestly, for them, that, that they would have comfort and that they would trust in you, that you are working out what is your perfect will. And Lord, I pray also that you would give them the joy of seeing their, their relatives or, or friends or coworkers saved. Lord, help us not to boast, only to boast in Jesus, to see you as our as our all in all, Lord, and that we wouldn't count any of our own works as being of our merit or, or part of our value, but we'd see our value as, as only in what you have said about us, that we are the righteousness of Christ and that we can't add to that, Lord. Lord, thank you for giving me opportunity to speak from your word. Help my brothers and sisters take, take something away from this sermon that they would grow in, in their knowledge of you and their love for you. Amen.